Welcome to The Chain, the podcast exploring the lives, careers, research, and discoveries of protein engineers, scientists, and biotech professionals. We look at the impact their work is having on the field and where the industry is headed. Tune in to stay up to date on the newest advancements and to hear the stories that are impacting the world of biologics. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this podcast. I'm Dr. Rajesh Sundaraisen, a scientific leader and GSK fellow at GlaxoSmithKline in Stevenage, United Kingdom. It's my great honor and pleasure to introduce Professor Thomas Sakmar. Tom is a senior physician and the Richard and Isabel Forlard Professor and heads the Laboratory of Chemical Biology and Signal Transduction at the Rockefeller University in New York. Tom is an international expert in the field of GPCR biology with important contributions, and I would like to invite Tom to share glimpses from his travels through the GPCR world, both as an insider and his thoughts on the evolution of the GPCR field through the years. Over to you, Tom. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for hosting today. It's really a pleasure to be here. I can say at the beginning that I'm sitting in an office um, near Karolinska Institute, where just yesterday I uh, attended the Nobel Prize lectures in medicine or physiology. And I think some of the topics we might uh, touch on today in terms of future directions might uh, allude to some of those amazing discoveries that I heard about yesterday. Um, You suggested that I should um, maybe talk just briefly at the beginning about my um, journey in this this field of GPCR biology and molecular pharmacology. And if I do that, I have to go back more than 30 years to uh, the beginning of my postdoctoral training. Although I had worked is an undergraduate in chemistry and did some work in membrane protein chemistry and biochemistry. I was also a medical student and ended up doing a residency in Boston at Mass General Hospital. At some point, I realized that I had missed molecular biology training. And since I saw my career going in the direction of academic research, I thought it was a deficiency. So almost as soon as I got to Mass General, I started to try to find a research postdoc that I could do when my medical training, at least the initial phase of it, was complete, meaning my residency was complete. And I interviewed in several labs in the Boston-Cambridge area that um, were working on membranes or membrane proteins, because that's what I could offer my experience there, but also we're using a molecular biology approach. And in the end, I made the decision to work with Gobin Karana in the Department of Chemistry at MIT. When I first went there, I thought that I could spend a year or so, maybe a year or two, learn molecular biology and then go back to the clinics. But I turned out to have the privilege of working with Gobin for about five years. And then I never really went back to the clinics. I went uh, directly to my first independent position where I still am today at Rockefeller University in New York. And when I first went to Gobin's lab, it was an interesting period. Molecular biology was just being applied to studies of membrane proteins for the first time. And Gobin's lab was mainly working on bacteria rhodopsin, 
which is a light-driven proton pump from the H. halobium archaebacterium, a really interesting model system. And that system, although it was interesting, uh, fundamentally interesting, the mechanism of proton pumping and the linkage between um, the photon capture by retinal and conformational changes in the protein, to me, it didn't seem like it was uh, applicable, directly at least, to my interests in medicine. And at that same time, Gobin was open to working on other projects, and a small group within his large group uh, decided to work on the visual system, visual phototransduction in uh, the retinal rod cell. And this system had was open to Gobin because there was a similarity between rhodopsin, the visual pigment that actually absorbs light and transduces that information downstream to second messenger pathways. There was a similarity between that system and, rhodop and bacteria rhodopsin. Bacteria rhodopsin and rhodopsin shared a same chromophore, a related uh, chromophore actually, but very similar. The chromophore for rhodopsin is 11 cis retinal that photoisomerizes to all transretinal to drive conformational changes in the protein. Now, at that time, it was clear that rhodopsin coupled to a heterotrimeric G protein. So technically, rhodopsin was and still is a GPCR and maybe the prototypical GPCR. Um, at, at that time, the lab, Gobin's lab, um, was pioneering molecular cloning techniques. And um, myself and others in Gobin's lab were trying to clone rhodopsin and some of the heterotrimeric G-protein subunits that were found in the retinal rod cell. Simultaneously, um, other groups were doing the same thing. And remarkably, Jeremy Nathans uh, cloned first the bovine rhodopsin gene and then the human rhodopsin gene. And that led really to uh, the start of my experience with GPCRs and, and what I'm doing today. Shortly after that, um, Bob Lefkowitz and his group, including the folks at Merck and Brian Kobilka, cloned uh, the beta-2 adrenergic receptor. And um, that really was a pioneering uh, event. We, in Gobin's lab, started heterologous expression in mammalian cells of rhodopsin and made the first mutants of rhodopsin in which we could then test downstream signaling and the effects of mutants on downstream signaling. And I think that was really one of the starts in, the, in this field, um, bringing molecular biology, at least from my perspective at that time in the late 1980s, bringing molecular biology um, and molecular cloning into the field. There was a frenzy of cloning after that, many other GPCR genes were cloned, and many um, heterotrimeric G protein, especially alpha subunits, were cloned. And there was a remarkable amount of biochemistry and molecular pharmacology going on to figure out the signaling pathways, the coupling specificities of specific receptors to specific G proteins and the effects on cellular signaling in, in terms of second messengers. The second messengers 
were mainly known, but how they were modulated in that system was not so well known. And then the field expanded from there because it became clear that the cell-based heterologous expression systems could be used in um, high-throughput screening platforms to actually try to enhance the, the speed of drug discovery at, at specific GPCRs. So small molecules uh, were screened. Medicinal chemists worked together with molecular biologists like myself and others to figure out ways to um, learn from the results of structure, structure activity studies and also the high throughput screens. And large libraries were screened and a lot of interesting molecules were discovered in that, um, in that scenario. So that was my introduction, maybe the first five years or so to this field of GPCR biology. But in the background, I continued to work on vision for another decade and, and really worked on molecular genetics of color vision, um, some interesting um, physical chemistry uh, underlying spectral tuning and visual pigments, uh, but always in the context of how rhodopsin could be a model system for uh, GPCRs. And that's really the start. Since then, I've continued to work on GPCRs more and more and on vision um, less and less. But I would say that visual pigments are still my first love in terms of GPCRs. That's really exciting, Tom. I think uh, two things stood out uh, from your introduction there. One was the use of heterologous expression systems and uh, specific affinity capture methods. So uh, I wanted you uh, to comment on you know, what was the uh, unlearnings or learnings that came from, uh, you know, uh, isolation from a natural source uh, for the first rhodopsin pigments versus heterologous expression. Are there some stark differences between the two systems? Well, I would say, uh, yes, there, are, there were differences and um, <clears throat> they're worth commenting on. And I, I think that's really a perceptive uh, question because it could be argued that really the, the, the beta-adrenergic receptor had been affinity purified um, using uh, ligand affinity strategies mainly. Um, but the amount of material that could be purified was minimal. So I think most of the work in um, ligand activated GPCRs went in the direction of heterologous expression in uh, different cell lines using progressively better um, expression plasmids. Um, meanwhile, on the rhodopsin side, uh, it turned out that rhodopsin itself could be purified from bovine retinas at fairly uh, high efficiency. But those same strategies, which were mainly lectin affinity methods, did not work particularly well in um, the small amounts of material that could be expressed in cells and tissue culture. And one of my colleagues at um, MIT, someone who was actually one of my teachers when I first went there, um, Dan Oprian, who's now at Brandeis, really made a fantastic um, technical advance when he figured out that he could use a monoclonal antibody against the C-terminal tail of rhodopsin to immunoaffinity purify the material expressed 
in, uh, at that time, COS cells and later HEK293 T cells, that material reconstituted with the 11 cis retinal, then purified on the column um, that was uh, linked to the monoclonal antibody. After, after washing off all the nonspecific bound material, Dan figured out that he could compete off the purified rhodopsin or rhodopsin mutants with um, a peptide that corresponded to the monoclonal antibody epitope. And in this way, if you were patient and wanted to work hard enough in the dark room and in the cold room, you could purify material that was suitable for different spectroscopic studies. Remember, the beauty of rhodopsin is that it's got this um, covalently linked inverse agonist, which is 11 cis retinal. So you could purify in the dark the stabilized off state of rhodopsin and then put it in this, the system of interest, um, be it an, an FTIR uh, machine, resonance Raman, um, other biophysical assays, or just basic time-resolved UV visible spectroscopy set up, and you could flash a light on it, which would instantly turn the inverse agonist into an agonist and activate the system. So that was the big advantage of rhodopsin in those early years, is that you could get site-specific information about the activation pathway. And it turned out, as more GPCRs were cloned, the similarities between rhodopsin and these other GPCRs became more and more clear. And there were conserved residues between rhodopsin and other GPCRs that were highly conserved and turned out to be responsible, as might you might have expected, to um, the, the ligand binding pocket, coupling the ligand binding pocket to the activation mechanism. And I think those early years, um, now we're talking about the early 1990s, there were, before there were any structures available, there was a fair amount of information that was coming out from all of these studies uh, that we're talking about. And most of the information turned out to be, in general, correct about key conserved residues and their role in the molecular mechanism of GPCR activation. That's quite interesting. I mean, the amount of effort that the early biochemists spent on trying to characterize the uh, ligand bond forms probably later led to the uh, flurry of uh, pharma companies interested in uh, trying to find agonists and inverse agonists against GPCRs. So uh, could you uh, comment on like, you know, um, some of the state of the art uh, discoveries that uh, went on uh, to some of the clinical uh, inhibitors of GPCRs that we find today being prescribed uh, from your perspective as a, of a clinician? Hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's really a good point because ultimately, these studies on GPCR pharmacology and biology have had a major effect on the, the small molecule um, therapeutics world. Um, Big Pharma was always interested in, in GPCR uh, pharmacophores, and uh, especially there were drugs, even when I was in my uh, training period, uh, there were, of course, even then, before there was any of this information known in detail, 
there were beta blockers, for example, and relatively specific beta blockers for adrenergic receptor subtypes that were used for hypertension and treatment of arrhythmias. But this really took off, and it was clear from the early structure function work in that entire family of receptors that even without uh, high-resolution structures, you could get information that would really help the medicinal chemists to optimize um, molecules. And of course, uh, you could then evaluate these molecules in cell-based signaling assays um, as leads. And I think some of the early work, it sort of all started happening at once. <laughs> it's, it was the metaverse of GPCR uh, studies, this period in the 2000s, when you had the concept, um, the discovery, and then the concept of um, so-called bias signaling, meaning that um, the Lefko Lefkowitz group um, discovered that GPCRs not only signal through heterotromeric G proteins, but also through beta arrestin pathways. And that those two pathways, the balance of those two pathways was um, related to the overall uh, signal output. And that you could tune, in some cases, these pathways with small molecule uh, blockers. And, and then we got to this concept beyond just an antagonist, but the idea of inverse agonism, meaning that it was clear by then that there was some basal activity for almost every GPCR, some more than others, in the absence of any ligand. And that basal activity could be turned off with inverse agonists um, and also modified allosterically by small molecules, even that didn't bind in the so-called orthosteric pocket. And about the same time, uh, of course, structural studies were advancing. The, the high-resolution structure for rhodopsin was published in, I think, 2000 by Chris Palchewski and his colleagues. But that was from natural sources from bovine uh, retina. It took another seven years for the structures, the first structures of uh, the adrenergic receptors to come out. Um, mainly Brian Kobilka, but also uh, Ray Stevens and others started publishing high-resolution X-ray crystal structures. And the purification of the materials used in those structures was totally facilitated by the heterologous expression uh, pioneers of earlier and the fact that um, these f folks not only were expressing the wild-type receptor, but also mutants that could be stabilized, for example, to facilitate crystallization or engineered to include fusion proteins um, or loop structures to stabilize the um, dynamic domains of these proteins. So it was really molecular biology and biochemistry and the structural biology world that um, allowed these advances to um, move forward. There was, there was really a flurry of structural um, work from traditional high-resolution X-ray crystallography in around you know, the 2010s. And then that also evolved into the next phase of these studies. 
that was a nice summary of uh, the small molecule area. Uh, can you comment on if uh, biologics against GPCRs is the way to go forward, uh, given a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, you know non-specific effects uh, and off-target issues with small molecules against GPCRs? I think this is really an interesting uh, question for discussion because it may be that biologics is the uh, future of, of the field. Of course, there's an amazing amount of work still going on with small molecules and especially with computational uh, chemistry advances given the high-resolution structural information available. But on the other side of the coin, I think biologics are also uh, fascinating. I think when we talk about biologics, we immediately think of um, antibodies and monoclonal antibodies, and and these have applications for GPCR uh, drug discovery, big applic- applications and potential advances might be seen. I think that the interesting development that came from some of these earlier technologies that we discussed earlier was the use uh, of so-called nanobodies to stabilize specific conformations that would then be amenable to crystallization or cryo-EM studies. And nanobodies are still widely used as reagents for uh, structural studies. For any of the listeners who don't know, and probably you all do, but nanobodies are are single-chain heavy chain, single chain antibodies that come from camelids like camels or llamas, they produce in addition to conventional antibodies, these so-called single chain um, antibodies in which the variable variable domains um, of the heavy chain of these single chain antibodies can be cloned, selected, and purified. And these so-called nanobodies, which is actually a trademark name, are similar in many ways to FABs of conventional antibodies, only much more tractable. So nanobodies have been used extensively as reagents, which gave people the idea maybe to look back at the potential for monoclonal antibodies to modulate GPCR signaling. There was a history of this going back to the 90s and early 2000s especially with uh, family B receptors like glucagon receptor, where we published a paper with Bruce Merrifield showing that, um, in that case, polyclonal antibodies directed against certain extracellular domains, loops of the glucagon receptor could block glucagon binding. But then also in the monoclonal antibody space, monoclonal antibodies were um, characterized against a number of chemokine receptors that were advanced into drug trials, um, especially as HIV co-receptor blockers. In this case, the monoclonal antibody would bind to, for example, CCR5 or CXCR4 chemokine receptors that are HIV co-receptors and prevent cellular entry of HIV. Really interesting studies. So, Monoclonal antibodies have a lot of potential um, for GPCR biology. But again, there's a similar problem as there was, as you pointed out, with small molecules. Because if you make an antibody 
against one GPCR, a monoclonal, how do you know that that monoclonal doesn't bind to one of the other 400 or so potential similar GPCRs that uh, might be in the in the tissue, uh, the target tissue? And some of the work we've done has been to develop proteomics approaches actually to evaluate the specificity of anti-GPCR antibodies in a multiplexed fashion where we bind antibodies to color-coded beads on the Luminex platform, for example, and then uh, capture express GPCRs and then evaluate the specificity of um, the antibody binding in, in a one-pot reaction, which I think has a lot of potential. The other interesting thing uh, with respect to antibodies recently is that it turns out that there are a number of human autoimmune dis disorders in which there are serum autoantibody titers against specific GPCRs that are involved with the pathophysiology of the illness. Classically, the one that I knew about from the clinic was um, Graves' disease, which is a, an autoantibody, could be more than just the GPCR, but an autoantibody against the uh, thyrotropin-releasing hormone it can actually cause a thyrotoxicosis state. And there are many more diseases that have autoantibodies uh, circulating. And this has given people recently the idea that um, autoantibodies could be um, models of um, of drug uh, drug leads in the antibody space. Also interesting in these diseases is that in many cases the autoantibodies that are produced tend to be activating autoantibodies. The idea being that you could create monoclonal antibodies that would be well tolerated, um, low toxicity that might activate uh, specific GPCRs. So I think there's a lot of potential there. And maybe we should also talk about other kinds of biologics if we have time. Sure, please do. I mean, one thing that came across uh, when you mentioned about the nanobody is the, from a practical point of view, it's they're quite easy to make in, in uh, any simple protein biochemistry labs. And then they have, a, they are a great tool, both in purifying uh, um, GPCRs as well as for enabling structure uh, based in a drug design. Uh, uh, projects for against GPCRs. So uh, maybe if I um, just uh, in a, uh, ask you to elaborate on some of the aspects you mentioned about specificity in targeting GPCRs. So could you know this um, pan uh, antibody that targets a pan GPCR uh, have problems in uh, then downstream signaling because you can't differentiate which pathway uh, these GPCRs can function through the various alpha uh, and beta subunits in signaling? I, th I think this is um, a, a good area for future research because uh, I think that if you think about a monoclonal antibody against the extracellular surface of a GPCR, the first thing you would think is, oh, you can simply antagonize the agonist binding site of, of the receptor. But since the receptors are so dynamic, it could also be that monoclonal antibodies could be um, 
positive or negative allosteric modulators, even with access only to the extracellular surface of the receptor, because one of the concepts that's come in this field over over the years of study uh, along the lines that we discussed earlier is that there's really a coupling between the extracellular domain and the uh, intracellular domain extending into, in the case of the G protein, into the nucleotide binding pocket of the uh, of the heterotrimeric alpha subunit. So it's really a fascinating allosteric machine. And you can imagine that you could select antibodies that could have different pharmacological effects. The, the beauty of these things, nanobodies and, and antibodies are, again, you can use molecular techniques to uh, select, express, and then uh, purify lead compounds that have the desired effects using these cell-based uh, assay systems. So there's a lot of potential, I think. Great. I mean, as you mentioned about these uh, dynamics of GPCRs and the various subunits, so uh, one thing that you know for, uh, most pharma companies uh, uh, like us do is uh, trying to get uh, an overexpressed system from which we purify the GPCRs in order to enable uh, antibody discovery or biologics discovery effort. So how, how do you think the dynamics uh, in such an overexpressed system could influence what your a resulting antibody um, could be? Well, I think that this is a good point because the overexpression system, there could be multiple um, strategies here. One is that you could use overexpression simply to create material that you could use for structural studies. And the, the main structural approach nowadays would be single particle cryo-EM structural studies. And in those cases, generally you are stabilizing the receptor with a heterotrimeric uh, G protein along with the receptor to get the particle size up, and often with a pharmacophore or um, an antibody or a nanobody all, all together. And so there's a lot of potential there. If you overexpress a particular GPCR, uh, the cell the cellular signaling pathway could be altered but um i think you can uh, basically control for those things i think the cellular reporter assays and second messenger assays are so fantastic and so miniaturized now that uh it's not a problem to to really control properly and still get a lot of uh, relevant data even in overexpressed systems so I would be optimistic about the future of those studies. Yeah, I think in, in that line, some of the um, publications from your laboratory, uh, including the use of RAM proteins to help uh, you know, drive more GPCRs onto the cell surface, has really helped the field in trying to get more um, you know, uh, good targets for antibody discovery area. Yeah, I think that uh, we're very interested in, in this general strategy of looking instead of now just an isolated receptor and an isolated G protein, trying to see what's happening actually in the membrane and um, try to evaluate accessory proteins, allosteric coupling of cytoplasmic components and other membrane proteins, the idea of receptor dimers and heterodimers, 
which was explored early, but the technologies now are, are really better. Some of that should be readdressed. And also some of these other tools where you can take um, essentially patches of membrane and instead of putting the receptors into detergent solution for crystallization, you can put them into these so-called um, nanodisks, which are um, protein uh, encapsulated patches of membrane where you reconstitute in the presence of a bilayer. It's somewhat artificial, but these uh, nanodisks, which are apolipoprotein uh, subunits that form essentially a belt around um, a patch of membrane with a receptor inside, are, have a lot of potential. And there are a lot of the evolving technologies around this that are used not only in um, cryo-EM studies for single molecule work, but also for drug screening and single molecule uh, detection studies and single molecule tracking and other things. So I think there's a lot of potential for these kind of other tools uh, to study structures and to develop um, drug candidates on the biologic side. I completely agree with you. I mean, on the on lines of what you mentioned about nanodisks, there's also a completely new area of you know uh, synthetic polymers that could uh, mimic uh, the functions of a nanodisk uh, and help you isolate huge chunks of uh, complexes from uh, your target of interest and the surrounding uh, uh, interacting proteins along with the key phospholipids, which could be the clear uh, you know, differentiators uh, against the detergent extracted protein and could, you know, give us a whole new, uh, you know, dynamic nature of these uh, proteins, signaling complexes, et cetera, by cryo-EM analysis. Yeah, I completely agree with your uh, statement on that. Oh, I, I, I would, I'm glad you mentioned it because I would really be remiss if I didn't mention these other technologies, these so-called SMALPs, which are the synthetic uh, polymers that can extract membranes um, in in more or less native fashion. And also some other technologies that we and others have worked on involving uh, modified uh, DNA origami, where you can also in, encapsulate uh, membrane patches and put proteins into them. So I think there's so much that can be done with nanotechnology combined with molecular biology and chemical biology approaches, and it's really fascinating. Right. I mean, I think from a, a structural point of view into GPCRs to get more information on the targets, I think, uh, I don't know if um, it, using endogenous targeting of GPCRs and then trying to purify these endogenous complex from a non-overexpressed uh, cells or even in a, a, a model cell line could be the way forward in in capturing all these different dynamic states of GPCRs in the various signaling cascades, and then getting a snapshot view on cryo EM. So, uh, I mean, uh, what do you think uh, are the impact of those kind of studies? I totally agree. I think that uh, when we're talking about single particle or single molecule studies, we no longer are bound by um, overexpression to get useful information. And that brings up the possibility of developing inducible expression systems or um, chemical uh, methods like we've been developing to do um, genetic code expansion and unnatural amino acid mutagenesis at 
small scale and inducible systems. And I think all of these uh, have a role moving forward. And also, I, I we've been focusing for a while on antibodies, but I think that the 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 area of biologics extends um, back to to other biologics like peptides and small proteins. Because remember, uh, GPCRs uh, the, most GPCRs are binding um, small molecule metabolites or um, bioactive amines or neurotransmitters, but a large proportion of them bind peptides or small proteins as well. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, that's a fair point that you mentioned about peptides. In one of the difficulties uh, in uh, in delivering peptides as uh, therapeutics uh, could be the half-life uh, of uh, peptide therapeutics in, in systemic circulation uh, over uh, monoclonal antibodies. But uh, I think uh, with the more and more data that's coming up with these peptides and also uh, trying to protect these peptides into kind of formulations which will ensure that they are uh, you know, targeted to the area of uh, interest, uh, that could be quite critical if you're looking at small molecule, I mean, small biologics such as peptides. This is a, this is a great point. And of course, we have seen recently that uh, semaglutide or Ozempic or Wegovy, depending on the, invit- on the indication, diabetes or obesity, weight loss, where um, a, a GLP-1 receptor agonist um, was engineered based on a GLP-1 analog um, that had mutations and then um, a long-chain fatty acid attached to increase serum half-life uh, so that it was uh, a viable drug uh, candidate. It's still a parenteral drug, but you you could imagine that the there would be other examples where this could happen. And of course, the competitor of semiglutide is this terzepatide, um, which is a glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide or GIP receptor um, agonist also um, that activates both GLP-1 and GIP-1 receptors and also has a similar effect in terms of obesity indications. So there's a lot of potential for engineering of these small proteins. I think another uh, application that's interesting is things like using uh, phage display technologies to um, screen for uh, peptide analogs that can then be uh, further engineered along the lines of what was happening with, uh, for example, semaglutide. So I think there's a lot of potential there. There's also potential for even de novo design of uh, small proteins using AI approaches with the advent of AlphaFold and AlphaFold monomer and the availability of more and more high-resolution cryo-EM structures in which um, peptide agonists are bound to receptors in the presence of G-proteins. So there's so much more data available than there was even a decade ago. And the convergence of the structural data with these um, AI computational approaches really could be a golden age moving forward for the application of biologics to GPCR pharmacology. 
Ex- excellent, Tom. And I think um, on, on those lines and uh, coming from where you are uh, giving this podcast, so uh, what are your thoughts on um, the recent developments in uh, in the delivery of biologics using uh, mRNA as a delivery vehicle as against protein-based uh, therapeutics? So what are your reflections uh, in the uh, for for the past couple of years and in the context of where you are today? Well, uh, geographically, um, I'm here in Stockholm for Nobel Prize Week, which is a great honor to be able to participate in some of these activities. And hearing the story uh, yesterday from Kotlin Carrico and Drew Weissman about uh, the mRNA uh, modifications that allowed the uh, the the delivery of mRNAs that that produced high amounts of protein in in, in, in tissues um, that was facilitated by lipid nanoparticles. It's kind of interesting because um, I remember going back to the 80s in uh, Gobin Karana's lab at MIT, we were really struck by this PNAS paper that came out. I forget the, the year, but the lead author was uh, Philip Feldner, who described this lipofe- lipofectin uh, technology. And we immediately went into the lab with actually Gobin's encouragement and synthesized a bunch of analogs of these uh, lipid carriers that were described in this original paper and started using um, lipofectin, lipofectamine strategies to transfect our cells instead of using the old um, calcium phosphate or DEA dextran methods. So I, when I was in this uh, lecture, I felt like I was going back uh, 30 years and, and seeing how things evolve. And the delivery of the RNAs is fantastic. The problem is that I think these lipid nanoparticles generally go either to liver or dendritic cells, which is great if you want to replace a missing uh, liver enzyme or if you want to get an immune response as a as a vaccine strategy for dendritic cells, like for the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. But one amazing thing that Drew Weissman talked about was the recent success in actually targeted lipid nanoparticles, where um, without very much loss of efficiency, you can put a monoclonal antibodies on the surfaces of lipid nanoparticles to target um, specific cells or specific tissues. And you could imagine that this kind of approach could be used to uh, introduce uh, mRNAs that would encode for modified GPCRs into specific uh, tissues where you wanted to get a therapeutic effect. So the sky's the limit, the, the way I'm looking at this field. I think that's an interesting combination where if you could, uh, you know, decorate your lipid nanoparticle with an antibody against the GPCR, and then you package an uh, mRNA uh, that uh, blocks uh, uh, one of the G protein, uh, uh, you know, G proteins from functioning, then you have a, a combined molecule which helps you target the GPCR as well as block the specific pathway that's functioning via that receptor. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, observation and uh, interesting possibilities for the future. Yeah, this this suggestion you made is fascinating because we don't have to develop these uh, biologic approaches in the absence of knowledge about the existing 
generally good small molecule drugs. As you just mentioned, you could imagine using a small molecule drug against a specific receptor and then introducing through this uh, mRNA lipid nanoparticle targeting strategy a specific intracellular blocker. So now you've got a small molecule exterior and an intracellular protein blocker to really get bias that uh, could be almost tunable depending on the circumstance. So it's really a fascinating uh, possibility. Thank you, Tom, for your excellent uh, uh, summary of uh, the literature of GPCRs, delving into the world of small molecule GPCRs and contrasting that with biologics, and then also giving us some thought for the future on where uh, research and uh, direction of travel for uh, pharma companies are headed towards. Uh, on behalf of all the listeners, I thank you for an interesting podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you today.